0: now are the days that god is dead we remember how god emptied Himself into a human womb was born grew up brought good news to the oppressed and ostracized and was arrested and executed by empire by the state that occupied his people and what exactly happened on the cross what exactly happened in the tomb where god lay dead Theologians have asked these questions for two millennia and drawn different conclusions. Did Jesus die in humanity's place to appease a wrathful God or to pay a ransom to Satan? Did Jesus die in order to tear the barriers between creator and creation, to unite us to the divine forevermore? Or was his death utterly meaningless, like numberless deaths at the hands of human powers across the ages, And can we find some meaning in that meaninglessness? Not justifying suffering, but honoring what comes after it. The way survivors refuse to let the story die, refuse to let their friend's death be in vain. Earlier this week, I went live on YouTube to explore different theologies of the cross and the real-world consequences of those theologies. I'm thankful to the people who joined the live stream and enriched it with their ideas and questions. I'll definitely be doing more live streams in the future, so go subscribe to my YouTube channel, Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, if you want to be alerted when those live streams are about to happen. You can also go to YouTube now, um, the link's in the episode notes, to watch the finished stream that explored what happened on the cross. It's serious content, but there's some fun and laughter along the way. This podcast episode, meanwhile, is much more somber. Here, too, we'll explore ideas about what it meant for Jesus to die, to be a corpse in a tomb, and to rise again, and we'll do so focusing on the writings of queer theologians who connect Jesus' suffering to the suffering of many LGBT and queer folk similarly killed by violent human powers. I want to warn you that this content is intense, and much of it is disturbing. I'll repeat content warnings at the start of each excerpt we look at, but as a whole, you'll be hearing somewhat graphic details of the murders of Matthew Shepard and an unnamed trans-Argentinian woman, and there are quite a few stories of gay men dying of AIDS. If hearing these stories will cause you harm, please consider stopping the episode now. It's okay. If you're not up for hearing this episode, but you're eager to keep hearing my dulcet voice, you might revisit last year's Holy Week and Easter episodes linked in this episode's notes. However, if you are up for the difficult content here, it is absolutely worthwhile. I am deeply moved by the connections that the following authors draw between Christ and all the re-crucified peoples across history who were queer. Most of these excerpts come from the Queer Bible Commentary, a 2006 publication that a fellow seminarian kindly gifted me for Christmas. It spotlights some of the big names of the queer theology of the late 20th century. I don't always fully agree with these authors, from Marcella Althaus-Reed to Robert Goss, but I do find much meaning in the commentary I'm sharing with you today. In between excerpts, I'll be sharing some of my own commentary and poetry that relates to theologies of the cross. My hope with this episode as a whole is that it will invite each of you into your own pondering of the crucifixion and what came after. How is Jesus' suffering an expression of solidarity with all who suffer under oppressive forces? How do we live in ways that ensure that his death and the deaths of queer persons, of black persons and indigenous and Latine persons, of disabled persons and Jewish persons and so many others who have died at the hands of unjust states were not in vain? How do we commemorate all of them and commit ourselves to the declaration, never again? I'm going to start with a poem by non-binary minister Slat's tool that summarizes a lot of what I feel about theologies of the cross. They share this poem in their collection Queering Glent, which I highly recommend. What is our gravest sin? Carving our image of God into idols that look like ourselves. We who are so set on retribution, who cry out for vengeance instead of justice, who need all debts to be paid and all wrongs to be punished, this is our image, not God's. When I survey the wondrous cross, forgive me for the times I've seen a blood sacrifice to appease an angry God. This is our image, not God's. For you submitted yourself to our control. You bore our violence and you looked us in the eye and said, I will meet your worst with my best. And I will forgive you and redeem you and love you. This is how the cycle of our violence is broken. Our violence is met with your selfless love, which we cannot kill. Thanks be to you. To ease us into our exploration of connections between LGBTQ folk and Jesus, let's begin with Robert E. Goss's commentary on the beloved disciple of the Gospel of John. Reverend Dr. Goss was ordained a Catholic Jesuit priest in 1976, but resigned in 78 and moved on to co-found and participate in organizations serving people with HIV and AIDS. One of his best-known works is Jesus Acted Up from 1993. Goss is now an MCC pastor and is married to Reverend Joseph Shore. Together, their married last name is Shore Goss. In this excerpt, Reverend Shore Goss makes a case for the beloved disciple being Jesus's, well, beloved. The suggestion that Jesus and this disciple were lovers is not at all new. The famous playwright Christopher Marlowe got in trouble in the late 1500s for making this very claim. Meanwhile, the even more famous King James of England, yep, that King James of the King James Bible, validated his own relationship with a man by declaring, Christ had John and I have George. Meanwhile, the Catholic priest and beloved writer, Henry Nowen commissioned an icon of Jesus and the beloved disciple in 1983. Father Nowen was gay, though of course, as a Catholic priest, he was celibate he struggled with his gay identity for much of his life. According to Kittredge Cherry's article that I'll link, iconographer Brother Robert Lentz says that Nowen requested the piece to help him come to grips with his own homosexuality. I was told he carried it with him everywhere, and it was one of the most precious things in his life. Reverend Shorgos starts his commentary by noting that at the Last Supper, this disciple cuddles with Jesus. And says that here we see how god makes room in their embrace for all queer folk this reminds me of the words of james nisbet regarding the beloved disciple leaning into jesus's chest it's the place of safety those who are hidden there cannot perish they are safe in the arms of jesus i cherish the vision of all us queer folk safe and loved in god's embrace Reverend Shorgos goes on to describe the adoption sequence at the crucifixion, where Jesus instructs his mom and his beloved to support one another. The only content warning for this excerpt is a non-detailed mention of gay men dying of AIDS. In the farewell discourse, Jesus indicates that his love for the disciples is one of friendship, but the physical proximity of the beloved disciple and his private conversations during the meal single him out. The beloved disciple carries on a form of pillow talk. He is not a friend like the other disciples, for he is Jesus's beloved. For many queer folk, The Beloved Disciple serves as a reminder how faithful we have been to the Christian tradition despite its exclusions, its violence, and its crucifixions of our folk. We have remained faithful to a tradition whose institutions have consistently rejected us and targeted us. We may not be loved by the churches, but we certainly have a place in the heart of God. At the crucifixion, Jesus places his mother in the care of the beloved, and the beloved disciple in care of his mother. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. I've often witnessed the repetition of this adoption event between the beloved disciple and Mary at the deathbeds of gay men dying of AIDS with their lovers and their families. It is the powerful entrusting of unfinished business in the face of death and personal tragedy. Gay lovers and mothers of deceased gay men have reenacted the narrative too many times, forming a human quilt to share their grief and a community seeking solace in the midst of tragedy. The kind of tenderness that Goss envisions between Jesus and his beloved is perfectly encapsulated in the following poem by gay trans poet Keaton St. James, who kindly gave me permission to share his poem here. A Portrait of John at the Last Supper. When the end that is not an end arrives, you will stand by his mother while his blood runs out warm and the sky shudders with grief. But you are not there yet. You are leaning against him as he laughs and talks and sings, warming the whole table. James passes around the olive oil for the bread. Peter and Matthew elbow each other in jest, and Judas throws chunks of lamb meat into the air, showing off how he can catch them in his mouth while everyone applauds. The evening hums in its tenderness. Jesus' body is so warm beside you, and you wish you were as strong as thunder, someone artists might paint in warm reds and golds. Instead, you are young, wine stain on one sleeve and fig seed stuck in your teeth. Even he isn't immune, with sunburned cheeks and dirt under his nails, but beneath the human lies divinity heaving. He puts one arm around your shoulder. For a moment, the conversations fade out and the aching in your souls dissipates, replaced by the honeyed warmth of love of starlight. The connection between Jesus and the HIV positive gay men and others whose societies abandon them to die is poignantly depicted in a 1993 painting by Maxwell Lawton. Lawton envisioned the body of Christ with AIDS, as he explains thus. In the advent season of 1993, I was alone in my apartment and was overcome with grief from the loss of almost all my friends, loved ones, and mentors to AIDS. I felt like no one knew me anymore. A strange thing happened as I cried. I had a waking dream, like a vision. I saw myself sitting on a hospital examination table, naked and hooked up to oxygen and IV drips. Suddenly, the image changed. It was no longer me sitting there, but Christ, covered in AIDS, cancer, lesions, with his head bowed, nude, wearing only a crown of thorns. I knew I had to paint it. I quickly gathered my supplies and in a transcendent experience i made the first version of man of sorrows christ with aids i had questions that needed to be answered as i painted christ i was reminded of the many versions of man of sorrows referred to in isaiah 53 verses 3 through 4 from the 16th century and of grunewald's christ as a plague victim this gave me the merit to continue I also knew that I had to answer the fundamentalists who were saying AIDS was God's judgment on gay people and drug users. In the painting, I also quoted Jesus' words from Matthew 25, that when you offer caregiving to the least of these, my brethren, you are doing it unto me. I intertwined the words with the image. Afterwards, I knew something inside me changed. I realized God knows my pain and shares my grief. I was healed of a lot of hurt. God still knew me. I used this painting for one of my class papers on ethics. Then I kept it in my apartment. It was and is very personal. The seminary gallery had an open spot in their schedule and persuaded me to exhibit my painting. A visiting priest from Cape Town, who had been sent by Archbishop Desmond Tutu to Washington, D.C. to research AIDS ministries, saw my painting. Several months later, Archbishop Tutu and his new ministry, Walonani Embrace, invited me to Cape Town to make a similar version of the painting for St. George's Cathedral. I went while I was still a student at Wesley Seminary and while I was on experimental medications to save my eyesight from CMV, an AIDS-related virus. My painting brought attention to the AIDS crisis in South Africa and helped kick off the new ministry which is still active today. I set up a studio in the back of the cathedral at the end of the main aisle to the high altar. I made the painting three and a half feet by five feet. I quoted the text from matthew 25 in the three languages spoken in cape town koza afrikaans and english i had many daily visitors while painting some were deeply touched others yelled and spit on me when man of sorrows christ with aids appeared on the front page of the cape times in december 1994 it triggered worldwide controversy when someone showed up at the cathedral to rid the place of the heretic artist I was placed in protective custody and Archbishop Tutu responded to the press defending me and the painting as theologically correct. After I returned to the United States, I continued my studies at Wesley Seminary and graduated in 1996 with a Master's in Theological Studies. During this time, the painting took on a life of its own. After touring South Africa's universities and townships, the painting now hangs at Wola Nani Embraces Center in Cape Town, where people still come to hear and see the message of hope and healing it offers. Dreams do come true in ways that we can never imagine. I answered God's call and have lived to see people touched by my work. After a life well lived, sharing the wisdom gifted to him by the wounded Christ, Maxwell Lawton died of AIDS in 2006. Where we are headed next is much more intense. From the more passive violence of governments allowing LGBT persons to die by neglecting AIDS research, to the active violence of brutal hate crimes. Major content warning for descriptions of the graphic murder of Matthew Shepard, which happened in 1998. The only good news that comes from such horror, Reverend Thomas Bohatchi argues, is what comes after. The communities of the killed who refuse to let their story die, who take a senseless death and use it to enact real change. Here's the excerpt from Bohatchi's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, shared in the Queer Bible Commentary. The importance of the cross for queers is the possibility of meeting God in our pain and receiving ultimate transcendence. I concur with Jorgen Moltmann and Robert Goss that God was suffering with Jesus on the cross, that God did not plan the crucifixion but could not necessarily stop it, and that our hope as Christians comes from how God reacted to the crucifixion of Jesus and reacts to contemporary crucifixions. In this regard, the interpretive moment the hermeneutical key, if you will, for my queer reading of the crucifixion is the death of Matthew Shepard, a gay college student in Laramie, Wyoming, who was beaten, tied to a fence, and abandoned to die alone in the wilderness. I believe that Matthew Shepard is the most famous example of crucifixions that gays and lesbians have endured for generations. Eyewitnesses stated that Matthew looked like a scarecrow on that fence. But looking through post-colonial eyes, I believe he resembled the crucified left by the side of the road in Roman Palestine for others to look upon and know what happens to those who do not know their place in the imperial world. His humiliation and suffering were meant, like a scarecrow, as a warning for queers to keep away from decent people and, like ancient crucifixions, as an example to queers of what might happen if they flaunt themselves on hetero-patriarchal territory. Nevertheless, despite the horror of his execution, I contend that there was something redemptive about Matthew's experience, inasmuch as it did not go unnoticed, as other atrocities against homosexuals have the horror and brutality of his death, the perpetrator's insistence that he had it coming because he had come on to them, and the media circus created by homophobic hate-mongers at his funeral served to bring the issue of queer bashing into the public consciousness, and some steps have been taken to preclude this from happening again. The gay playwright Terence McNally, in the introduction to the printed version of his play Corpus Christi, makes explicit the Christological link between Matthew and Jesus. Jesus Christ did not die in vain because his disciples lived to spread his story. It is this generation's duty to make certain Matthew Shepard did not die in vain either. We forget his story at the peril of our very lives. Like the women who watched Jesus' death from a distance, we mourn these modern-day martyrs, yet also are prepared for the resurrection God has in store for all oppressed and marginalized people. Bohatchi's connection between Matthew Shepard and Jesus immediately reminds me of similar connections made by Black theologians like Dr. James Cone between the crucifixion and the state violence that has oppressed Black Americans from enslavement through the era of lynchings and into police shootings today. Not to mention in our punitive prison systems. It was in response to Cone's theology that I wrote the following poem about Jesus on the cross. Your death was nothing special. It was the death of uncounted criminals convicted under Roman law. In fact, two others died with you on that same hill, on that same day, in the same way. Bloody suffocation on a cross. So. If you had lived today, your death would have been likewise ordinary and likewise brutal. Exploded veins in the electric chair after an unfair trial or blood rushing out on a road with a busted street lamp, an officer's bullet in your gut, no trial at all. Jesus, Jesus, this is why your death matters. Because it didn't, not to the ones who killed you, Not to the soldier who thrust a lance in your side, as he had done to so many men on so many days like this one. Not to the men who cast lots for your clothes, profiting off your pain. Your death matters. Your death is precious because it was common, ordinary. You share the agony of every tortured spirit who has ever walked this earth. You share every cry muffled under the boot of one in power. And so I know that they with whom you have shared agony will also share in your rising. I have no words for this. It is beyond words. All I have is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As Miguel de la Torre explains in Embracing Hopelessness, there is nothing salvific about crucifixion. We are not saved through unjust suffering, although the oppressive suffering of the many who offer up their broken bodies as living sacrifices does provide abundant life for the elite few. Many would have us believe the purpose of the cross was necessary to satisfy God's anger, to serve as a substitute for us. Sinful humans could not redeem themselves before an angry God who required blood atonement. Only a sinless God as human could complete the process, make restitution, and restore creation. In other words, in order to satisfy God's vanity, God's child must be humiliated, tortured, and brutally killed, rather than the true object of God's wrath, humans. The problem with substitution theology is that it casts God as the ultimate abuser, the ultimate oppressor who finds satisfaction through the domination, humiliation, and pain of God's child. If we are to let go of these beliefs in God's need for a sacrifice, does the cross retain any meaning at all? Jesus' death was hideously ordinary, and hence infinitely meaningful. As Richard Rohr said, God did not die for us, God died with us. Through the cross, Jesus exposed the violence that is so commonplace that many of us have become desensitized to it for the evil it is. A key example being anti-black violence that forms a core tenet of white supremacy and is one foundation of the United States. Jesus' execution is akin to the lynchings, shootings, and executions of countless black lives in the United States. James Cone argues in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with a re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. Through the cross, Jesus showed us that God's power is not human power. It is not control through violence, but rather is compassion, is co-suffering, is interdependence and solidarity and letting go of the need for control. But God's power is antithetical to white supremacy and cisheteropatriarchy and all oppressive powers. And so Christianity, entangled in empire, will continue to promote the God whose anger demands blood and tortures it out of his own son. Furthermore, the dominating powers of empire, from first century Rome to today's America, attempt to strip humanity and dignity from those they deem useless or dangerous. But through the cross, Jesus reaffirmed the humanity and dignity of the world's most reviled, tortured, and discarded. For what they suffer, God suffers. This is why Jesus' arrest and crucifixion still matter, even if they are not the key to salvation. De La Torre's discussion of the cross continues thus, For Christians from marginalized communities, the importance of the cross is not in its redemptive powers, for all aspects of Christ's life, death, teachings, and resurrection are redemptive. The importance of Jesus' crucifixion is the point when Christ chose solidarity with the world's marginalized, even unto death. Christ becomes one with the crucified people of his time, as well as with all who are crucified today on the crosses of classism, colonialism, racism, sexism, heterosexism, and religious discrimination. For Christians to die with Christ so they can also live with him means they too must find solidarity with the world's crucified people. In the next excerpt I'll share from the Queer Bible Commentary, indecent Theologian, Dr. Marcella Althaus-Fried also connects the crucifixion to the murders of LGBT and queer folk. Please pay attention to the content warnings for this part of the episode in particular. Details around a fictional but fact-based brutal murder of an Argentinian trans woman, use of words like queer as a slur, and the repeated use of the word transvestite to describe this woman. I considered replacing each use of transvestite in this piece with trans woman because I know that this word is hard for many transfeminine folks today to hear. However, after consulting with a few people, I decided to keep it in, as it is grounded in cultural context in which it was not an inherently offensive term, but one of many words that certain members of the LGBT community used to identify themselves. At this point in Argentinian LGBT history that the story takes place, distinctions between trans women and people that I, in my cultural context, might call cisgender men who choose to cross-dress or do drag, were not firmly set. Therefore, if I were to alter the language to fit my own context, I would risk sanitizing the past and erasing lived experiences that differ from my own. If the use of this word is hard for you to hear, along with the descriptions of this woman's death, then I recommend skipping past this excerpt. You can look in the episode's timestamps to see where it ends. With that content warning passed, let's begin. Alt Read opens by describing a story by queer Argentinian writer Néstor Perlonger that centers on the news of a body found on the road that seems to belong to a trans woman, her clothes torn and muddy murdered. Who killed her, the story asks. Was it the Sao Paulo police, in one of their racias against transvestites? The crucifixion style of writing of Perlonger reaches a climax as he describes the messianic panic of one policeman when looking at the quality of the girl's makeup and torn clothes. She reminds him of someone he saw on the cover of a magazine. Damn it, he exclaims as he discerns the identity of the innocent, the loca was famous. She must have been some kind of minor celebrity. Maybe she had a brief appearance on some local television show, or perhaps she was interviewed for a tabloid newspaper about human rights and sexuality. Whatever the case, her fame is a threat to the police, to the powers that be that would see queer persons stomped into the mud without a fuss. After all, Althouse Reed explains, Her death may raise voices. It may not be just another killing committed with impunity. It may create questions and problems. By her death, she may succeed, then, in calling attention to the killing of so many girls like herself. She may even contribute to the girl's redemption. And finally, a transvestite might be able to get a job, have a decent life, love, and be happy. But at the moment, the preoccupation is what to do with the body. The body should disappear. And some other transvestites, some girls who were friendly with her, might come and ask, have you seen our friend? Where have you put her body? But the body will never be found, for she has ascended to heaven. Like the Magdalene asking, what have you done with the body of my beloved? The answer will remain mysterious the name of the transvestite will become legendary. They have killed her, but she will come back. In patriarchal Argentina, transvestites are at a crossroads of public worship and church and state tactics of extermination. They are adored when acting in public theaters, but they attract police as well as religious brutality. Perlonger's narrative on the death of an innocent transvestite forms a close parallel to the scene of the crucifixion of Christ described in Mark 15. Jesus' clothes become the center of attention. This is Jesus in drag, dressed in a royal purple cloak with a crown of thorns. He is the subject of laughter and derision, just as the transvestite of the Pan-American Highway in Buenos Aires, or in the Brazilian slums, attracts laughter and derision for her gender-fucking, that is, for crossing borders of dress codes and dislocating identities. And then, there is a Roman officer musing to himself, truly this man was the son of God. Or, as Per Longard would put it, damn it, the loca was famous. Perhaps a famous dancer, or perhaps a human rights activist, or perhaps both. And her body would become the secret of the centuries to come, and people will tremble, sensing the mystery of a queer holiness. Imagine a tabloid headline. A queer man of God was crucified yesterday. Why was Jesus killed? What threat could this man have represented to anybody? It is difficult to see. In his story, Perlonger elaborated on the issue of the need of the expiation sacrifice of the queer. The killings of homosexuals in Argentinian society have within them a necessity of biblical proportions, manifesting purifying rituals of the different in society. In the tabloids, the killing of queers is a genre in itself, designed to produce a mixture of moralization and amusement in the readers. They are a kind of reasoned killing, which becomes part of a discourse of expected deaths, since death is portrayed as the consequence of a sexually transgressive lifestyle. The tabloids reflect the need to provide the public with the exemplary deaths of gays. They go to great lengths to trivialize these crimes as part of a self-justificatory strategy. For the gay man or woman to deserve their death is not enough. They need to be portrayed as going out looking for it. Jesus knew what was coming. He could have avoided going up to Jerusalem. Once there, he could have avoided confrontation. Or, having left the city, he need not have gone to a hillside where he knew his enemies would catch him in the act with his friends. Even accounts in the tabloids of the killing of gays tend to be so deprived of reality that they have the appearance of coming from a comic strip. The horror of the events is glossed over or denied. So it is that in the taking of Jesus, the scene is not without comic elements. First, there is the description of the company of soldiers creeping up the slope with a variety of swords and weapons, to deal with a handful of men who apparently can't keep their eyes open. Jesus himself seems to mock them for the exaggerated display of arms. And then there is the incident of the young man who, curiously, was wearing nothing but a piece of linen cloth. As the soldiers attempted to apprehend him, he dashed off naked like a streaker, leaving the soldiers holding the sheet. Were they annoyed or did they collapse with laughter? Queers can be very funny, and our attention is distracted from the true horror of the moment. Perlonger comments how, in The Gutter Press, queers seem to be portrayed as prone to do the kind of wrong things which provoke crimes against them, as when they insist on going to places where they should not be seen. Either they love someone too much, or they are too lonely to be prudent. Or, too often, they have simply a kind of obstinate, loving behavior which attracts fateful crimes against them. The death of a queer in the tabloids never seems real enough. These are texts which produce lesser deaths, like Jesus' own death. Is that the reason why the cross appears so easily as inexpensive jewelry? The death of Jesus has been trivialized, not by the tabloids, but by the theological gutter press of homophobia. In reality, the cross is the attempt to kill, once and for all, the multiple resurrections of a queer Jesus, to fix him once and forever on a stable cross so that no queer god would do what queer gods do, that is, to exceed the border limits of a fatigued heterosexual foundational epistemology which has reduced religious experience and human love. but. Will the queer Jesus resurrect? I belong to a community of people who think that yes, the resurrection of the queer God is not only possible, but already a reality. The queer God is present in every group or individual who still dares to believe that God is fully present among the marginalized, exceeding the narrow confines of sexual and political ideologies. For God comes out from heterosexual theology when the voices from sexual dissidents speak out to the churches, daring to love with integrity in a world where love has also become a commodity. In fact, in every community of excluded people and in every inch of the struggle for sexual and economic justice, the queer God manifests God's self with full glory, power, and grace. We've come to the end of stories about Jesus on the cross. Next up are queer theologians commentaries on his resurrection. However, it does not do to jump straight ahead to that joyful rising. There is a liminal space between the death of Jesus and his rising. He spent several days as a corpse in a tomb. Liminal spaces are queer spaces. They break binaries like no other in learning to walk in the dark barbara brown taylor describes this liminal space thus everyone who saw the risen jesus saw him after whatever happened in the cave happened in the dark as many years as i have been listening to easter sermons i have never heard anyone talk about that part resurrection is always announced with easter lilies the sound of trumpets bright streaming light but it did not happen that way If it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. I let this sink in. New life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. This threshold between the death of God and God's rising is holy. Let's linger here a moment and see what queer wisdom dwells in this twilight as I share a poem I wrote for Holy Saturday with you. They wanted, no, they needed to touch you one last time. So they trudged the tombward path With their perfumes and their spices, their strips of cloth to cocoon your body in for its final transformation back to dust, their shoulders almost broken with grief, heavy as the cross that crushed the life from your flesh. Let me fall in step behind them. Let me take my place in that line of broken hearts bearing a cross of grief together. Let me shoulder my share of the burden and let me not rush to the first fingers of dawn, frail and trembling, reaching past a rolled back stone to empty space where your corpse should be. No, let me linger in the moment when your corpse still lies there and anguish fractures the air into splinters that cut the lungs. This moment matters. Your brown body, with the breath pressed out by the inexorable boot of Empire, matters. And the moment that comes after cannot ease this one. It never has, and it never will, for there are still bodies broken, breathless, beaten down by Empire's brutality, or else it's apathy. And you, with us to the last, still lie among them. You hold them close and share their final exhalation, be it in a hospital bed, the street, a cell. So let me not sprint to sunrise when your body can still be found nestled with cold bodies in their graves. Blessed be the hands that carried the spices and perfumes, water and cloth. Blessed. Blessed be the throats, worn rough with sobs, yet refusing to be silenced, broadcasting the crime lest some claim ignorance. I'll not dishonor them by racing past to the future reunion of form to dust, breath to body, lover to loved, before they are ready. Keep watch. Soak in. Be present with them. This moment is holy. And now we come to Easter, to that miraculous sundering of the binary between life and death. Let's return first to Thomas Bohatchi's chapter in the Queer Bible Commentary, where he moves from the crucifixions of Jesus and Matthew Shepard into the queer Christ bursting from the tomb. The queer theologian Robert Goss has asserted that Easter was the moment when God made Jesus queer. This is when God queered, or spoiled, the spoiling of God's Son by raising him from the dead. This is when God stirred up the status quo by vindicating the deaths of political martyrs for all time and saying no to the oppressions associated with discrimination in all its forms. On Easter, God made Jesus queer in his solidarity with us. In other words, Jesus came out of the closet and became the queer Christ. For Goss, the queer Christ is a Christ who is for queers and is queer himself, by virtue of representing all of the oppressed throughout history who have been brutalized, killed, or simply rendered invisible. This is true atonement, standing in for all of the hurts and slights that have afflicted God's queer children for millennia. This queer Christ not only bursts forth from the empty tomb, leaving behind the grave clothes of homophobic violence and compulsory heterosexuality, but also is resurrected in each of us as we accept our queerness, our divine birthrate, to imagine, to stir up, and to spoil in God's name. In a strictly queer context, the Christ that God queered on Easter looks at the deaths of queer people from murder, AIDS, and suicide, and invites us to proclaim, Never again. Reverend Robert Goss also has more to say on the topic of the resurrection. Here's another excerpt from him, shared in the Queer Bible Commentary. Content warning for a story about a gay man dying of AIDS, but it's a tender story more than a tragic one. Resurrection is God's ultimate queer surprise. It is the meta-narrative for all the parables by which Jesus shocked his audience. What God did in the resurrection of Jesus, God was doing from the beginning of creation and in the ministry of Jesus. It is the coming out of God as unconditional love and grace. The presence of the risen Christ is repeated in queer lives of faith and struggle, even in contemporary times. In Michigan, a man named David wanted his union of twelve years with John, blessed by a representative of God, before they died. David lay on the couch, while Jim, a gay Presbyterian minister who also had AIDS, moved his hands to the silent sounds of peace. He spoke nourishing words of blessing on these two lives bound by God's grace. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And then, as the minister began to celebrate communion for those who were present, he spoke the familiar words, this is my body broken for you, and that was the point at which David died. Do this in remembrance of me. The story of Jesus is not finished, it is remembered and repeated in the queer lives of countless humans. The risen Christ is encountered in the outsider, in two HIV-positive gay lovers whose marriage is blessed and celebrated by a gay minister with AIDS. Each time a Christian celebrant fractures the bread in faith, the risen body of the queer Christ is disseminated into pieces of the blessed bread and devoured by queer Christians. The queer Christ becomes recognizable in a multitude of queer bodies and lives. Michael Kelly notes how queer folk have to look for the risen Christ outside the church community. As they discover him outside the community, they have the responsibility to journey back to the community. The queer church travels back to the mainstream church, bringing the message of the power of Christ's resurrection discovered in their embodied erotic experiences. They embody the risen Christ, and the recognition of their embodiment of the queer Christ motivates them to return to the larger community to bear witness to the queer Christ in their own lives. They now have the power to transform the despondent and disembodied community, to change the hearts of its members so that they can recognize the presence of the risen Christ embodied in queer disciples. It is only their disembodied return that prepares the community to welcome and hear the risen and embodied Christ in their midst. That last idea? The idea that we who have been shunned and shoved away from mainstream churches can be empowered to return to them, to lovingly compel them to recognize the holy in us, is quite a challenge to me. I do not believe that any marginalized person must attempt such reconciling work with their oppressors. However, I do believe that some of us are empowered and called to that work. I count myself among that number. I do believe in the future foretold by the prophet Isaiah, who envisions a world where wolves take up residence with lambs and where there is no harm done anymore. The question of courageous conversation between oppressor and oppressed is one worthy of further pondering. In the meantime, I'll close with one more story that likewise has to do with the elements of the good news that only members of the LGBT community can proclaim. This last excerpt comes from a different book than the others, also from the early 2000s, called Out, The Voices and Gifts of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgendered Presbyterians. It's one of my favorite stories to share with chaplains, as it speaks to the power of queer-affirming spiritual care. Content warning for another story of a gay man dying of AIDS in a hospital. Note again a use of terminology that reflects its historical context. Where the text uses gay and lesbian, today we would likely say LGBTQ to be more inclusive. Also, before sharing this excerpt, let me explain that it's sort of like two excerpts combined into one. The first bit is the 1993 account of the Reverend Dr. Nancy Wilson about an encounter with a gay man in a hospital. This account was then shared and expounded upon in a sermon by Reverend Daniel E. Smith in 1995. Reverend Dr. Nancy Wilson is the former moderator or global leader of Metropolitan Community Churches, the MCC, a denomination that was created for the purpose of affirming queer folk. It was Christmas Eve last year when I received a call from hospice. I was asked to visit a young man named Michael. When I arrived at hospice, I met a young man who was about 25 years old and who was dying of AIDS. He had tubes going in and out of his body. He could not speak because he had tubes in his nose and mouth, and he had tubes coming out of his abdomen. The young man was very distressed and was having periodic seizures. The staff at the hospice had told me that Michael had been hanging on for dear life, anxious afraid and angry. He couldn't let go. He could not talk, but he could write. He had a pencil and a large tablet. It took him an excruciatingly long time to even write one single word, and so for forty minutes he wrote little words and things. I felt increasingly distressed and ineffectual. I didn't know if it frightened him to see me. I was wearing a clerical collar, or if he just didn't know who I was. But what was even more distressing was the concern of whether I was being more hurtful than helpful. I sat there for several minutes and finally he wrote the words, HELP ME. I said, Michael, I don't know how I can help you, but I can pray for you. Would you like me to pray for you? He sort of nodded, yes, oh, I touched his head and began to pray for him. As I prayed, tears came down his eyes, and I began to cry as well. When I had finished praying, he looked at me and wrote on his pad, this is a hospice, what are you doing here? That was a profound question. It was Christmas Eve, this was a hospice, what am I doing here? I just looked at him and said, Well, right now, I'm crying with you. That was about all I could manage. He wrote, what church? And I said, Metropolitan Community Church. He didn't know what that was, so I told him the story of MCC and Troy Perry. I told him I was a lesbian, and I could see all this was news to him. Hours, days before his death, he first hears of the possibility of gays and lesbians in church. I was filled with a sense of poignancy and pathos. Here was a dying gay man, who had never been able to put his sexual orientation and faith together. And now, because of his situation, we couldn't even speak about that. So I began to talk to him, about God's good gift of his sexuality and our spirituality as lesbian and gay Christians. I could see him listening intently. Then he kind of looked up at me and wrote on his tablet, Gay angels? The smile on my face was immediate, and I said, Yes, Michael, there are gay angels. I know many. In fact, one of them died in the room right next door to you just a few months ago. His name was Ben but there are many, many others. All of a sudden, he had this look on his face, and I just sensed him begin to relax. The last thing he wrote to me was, send them. I felt like I was in the presence of the divine through this incredible experience of knowing that Michael could not let go until he knew that gay angels would accompany him to the throne of God in some way. He wanted the kind of company that he trusted on this last piece of the journey. And he did not want to go anywhere that he was not welcomed as a gay person. Reverend Daniel E. Smith repeated Reverend Wilson's account during a sermon he wrote for Easter Sunday in 1993. The congregation to whom Reverend Smith preached this sermon was the church that he served as pastor from 1984 through 2020. West Hollywood Church was founded in 1913. It was originally a Presbyterian church, But in 2012, the congregants voted unanimously to join the United Church of Christ instead, which they saw as fully affirming LGBT slash queer folk. I'm going to read from Reverend Smith's sermon, where he connects Nancy Wilson's story about ministering to a man dying of AIDS to the Easter story, the resurrection story. Here's the excerpt from his sermon now. In the Gospel today, we're told that on that first Easter morning, the women who went to the tomb and those who guarded the tomb were filled with fear as they experienced the resurrection. But the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid. Come see the place where Jesus lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. I now believe, deep within, that those angels, at least for me, were gay and lesbian angels. Our congregant Lisa insists that the angel who rolled back the stone was a dyke equipped with a Swiss army knife. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection power of God's love, let us remember that we are surrounded by gay and lesbian angels, those who have been with us on this journey and now know the full truth of the glory of resurrection, that God's love is wildly inclusive and the joy of resurrection life is meant to be lived on this earth as it is in heaven. With Michael, we say, send them, Send them to us, these gay and lesbian angels that roll away the stones from the tombs that hold us in fear. Send those gay and lesbian angels to us who call us to come out, unafraid, as we are, raised in newness to the fullness of life. Send those gay and lesbian angels to us who have already experienced the love God has for us, that tell us that evil powers and principalities will not silence us and we, like Jesus, will be raised to new life. Send those angels, those beautiful gay and lesbian angels, to us every time we are afraid to journey forward into life. Send those angels to us every time we are unsure of God's love for us. Send those angels, those brilliantly radiant gay and lesbian angels to us, O God, so that we may know of your love for us and that the promise of the resurrection is for us too. Amen.